John chapter 7, verse 32 through 52. You'll remember that uh, from last week that Jesus was at the Feast of Booths. Uh, He had come there privately, secretly, but then began teaching during the middle of that feast because that feast lasted for about a week, uh, for uh, seven days, but then there was an eighth day as well, a a second uh, day of rest and convocation afterwards. So it was an uh, eight-day feast. And in the middle of the feast, he had uh, risen up and had started teaching. And both, even before he got there, and then especially once he started to teach, caused a lot of discussion, a lot of muttering, a lot of disputing about who Jesus was. Uh, and some of that continues, as we'll find in this text. Uh, but we come to, especially in the middle of this text, the a last day of that feast when he gets up again to cry out. So let me go ahead and read chapter 7, verse 32 through 52. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Dear Father, we thank you for your word of Christ, the message of the Savior and his good news of salvation. 
We pray that you would uh, bless your word to our growth, to our edification, that we might be built up, that we might understand it, that our minds would be open to understanding what you have taught here in this gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, um, it is during the Feast of Booths, and as the Pharisees and the chief priests um, hear of the muttering of the people about Jesus, they hear these disputes, you know, I think he's the Christ, no, I don't think he's the Christ. When the Christ appears, will he do more than this man? They hear that Jesus is the talk of the town, and again, earlier, they had not spoken openly of him because uh, the leaders were seeking to kill him. Well, they do get wind after all that they are speaking of Jesus, that Jesus is there among them. And so rather predictably, uh, they send the officers, the the temple guard, the soldiers that they had on hand to uh, like a security force for the temple uh, to go and arrest Jesus, especially since he was there uh, in the temple. And that's kind of brackets this passage. They get sent Then we learn what Jesus is teaching, and then the officers return at the end of the passage, not having arrested Jesus at this point. But they they send uh, them to arrest Jesus, and Jesus responds to this hostility with a warning. Uh, He was only there for a little longer, and that's true. He was only there for about six more months, uh, or seven more months, counting the time after his Resurrection. This was in the fall, and then it was the next Passover in the spring, which would be his death and resurrection. Now, he was there for a little time, a little longer, but then he was going to go to him who sent him. Now, someone who had been following along and understanding what Jesus meant would understand this to refer to God, uh, to his Father in particular, to to heaven, but the crowd uh, does not understand. But he was referring to his, to his glorification, to his ascent to heaven, and those who did not receive him would not be able to follow him there. Uh, those who were hostile to him would not be able to find him, would not be able to uh, go to the place that he was preparing. He'll say more about that uh, to his disciples later on. But the Jews misunderstand Jesus. Uh, they don't realize that he's speaking of heaven, and they wonder... Is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks, referring to the Jews who lived in other lands, particularly in the the Greek-speaking areas like Greece itself and Asia Minor? Uh, Is he going to go off into those communities and and begin teaching the Greeks? Is that what he means by we won't be able to find him and won't be able to follow where he goes? There's a bit of irony here. In fact, there's a lot of irony uh, throughout really the Gospel of John, especially in this passage where People misunderstand Jesus, but then end up saying something more true than they mean it. Uh, Saying something that's uh, kind of ironically true. Because Jesus would ascend to heaven, yes, but actually he would preach to the Greeks. Uh, He would preach peace to those who are near and preach peace to those who are far off by his word and spirit. Um, In fact, right before his hour comes, right before he is arrested at Passover, there are Greeks who come to see him. And he speaks of how after he is lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. So these people misunderstanding Jesus uh, speak more truly than they think they are, because it's not the case like they think. 
it's not true the way they think it's true. He wasn't just going to move. He was thinking of something much greater when he said, I'm not going to be here. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus speaks of his uh, ascending to the Father, uh, being glorified. And at that time, he would also pour out the Spirit upon his disciples. In verses 37 through 38, he speaks of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And he speaks of this life-giving Spirit um, and the, the life that he gives like living water. And that's, John makes that clear to us. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so he uses the imagery of living water uh, to speak about this uh, gift of life through the Spirit, the Spirit himself that he was to give those who believe in him. Uh, but these verses, in verse 37 38, I want to look first at the occasion of these words, then the invitation of these words, and then the promise that is in these words. Uh, first, what is the occasion? Jesus spoke of living water on the last day of the feast, <clears throat> the great day. This was the end of the Feast of Booths. The feast reminded the people of their journey in the wilderness. This was the feast where they would dwell in tabernacles. They would make uh, booths to kind of recreate that time in Israel's history where they were in the wilderness. And what was one thing special about that time? Uh, one thing special about that time is that they were fed directly by God, that they received manna from heaven, and that the rock, uh, that water came from the rock to feed the people in the wilderness, and they would remember these things. And every seven years at least, also the law would be read in its entirety uh, to remind the people of what uh, Moses had given them. They were not to live by bread alone after all, but by every word that came from his mouth. Now during that feast, they one practice that they had was to take water from one of the pools in Jerusalem and then to bring it up to the temple and to pour it out before the Lord at the altar, uh, remembering the water in the wilderness, and perhaps also an expectation of similar blessings in the future. At least in later Jewish writings, that's how it is explained. Um, certainly the prophets, uh, even before this practice began, had picked up the imagery of water in the wilderness, which historically happened in those wilderness years, and used that imagery to explain the grace of God and the life-giving spirit to his people, and especially the great blessings that would come when the Christ would come, when the Messiah would come. In fact, the imagery goes back even beyond the wilderness, earlier to the Garden of Eden. Because remember what? The Garden of Eden had a river flowing through it, and that river divided into four, and watered the earth, and, and went out in every direction. And so this image of, of water coming from either the rock or from the temple um, was something that the prophets often used. Um, let me bring up a few texts. First of all, this isn't from uh, a prophet per se, but in the prayer in Nehemiah 9.20, connecting the spirit and the manna and the water, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, 
and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Speaking of God's care for his people in the wilderness. In Isaiah 44, verse 3, God says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so here, the, just as rain would bless a thirsty land and desert, uh, so the spirit and God's blessing would be poured out upon the people. Zechariah 14, verse 8, uh, speaks of a great day of deliverance and salvation. Um, and at that point, or on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And then Ezekiel 47, I read at length already, uh, Ezekiel sees this vision of the waters flowing from the sanctuary, bringing life even to the Dead Sea, watering trees that would bear fruit every month continually, their fruit for uh, food and their leaves for healing. A lot of this imagery not only is um, going to be come out in this passage in John, but John also records uh, Revelation, uh, which is, brings uh, much of this imagery uh, in that prophecy as well, of the water of life going through the city of God. On either side, there being trees of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Um, it comes from the throne of God. And so the occasion is significant that it's on this, this great day as they remember God's care for them in the wilderness, God's blessing that was uh, shown in that miracle of the provision of water in the wilderness, and how they were to be reminded of their dependence upon God's blessing and the uh, future that the prophets had prophesied of great abundance of the spirit or of the water. Now the invitation comes next. What did Jesus cry out? He stands up, he cries out, so he's shouting, he's getting attention, he, he calls out to the crowd, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now who's the invitation given to? It's given to all who thirst. It's given to all who thirst. Metaphorically, um, referring to not mere physical thirst, but uh, to all who feel their need of this grace, who, uh, who desire this uh, living water that he offers. Who is it that thirsts? Everyone in one respect Everyone is in need of life. We are all, apart from Christ, dead in our sins. Uh, but not everyone admits that they thirst. Not everyone is aware or senses their need of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit who see their need for grace, uh, for a Savior, uh, for life from God. So it's given indiscriminately. It's given to all, uh, but particularly calling people to recognize uh, their need for uh, life, their need for salvation uh, that Christ would offer. Who is it that thirsts? Let him come to Jesus. What are they invited to? They're invited to do, uh, to come to Jesus and drink. They are to believe in Jesus and by believing have communion in his life and grace. We had seen earlier in the previous chapter that coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are parallel 
phrases referring to the same thing. This both helps us understand what coming to Jesus means, that it's not a physical motion of us moving from one place, you know, down the aisle or something like that, but it's referring to the action of faith, and it also helps us understand faith, that faith is a coming to Jesus, a, a embracing of him, a resting uh, upon him. And so we should come to Jesus and drink. Uh, coming, uh, Faith is how a person comes to Jesus, and faith is the way by which you may drink the living water of eternal life from him. That drinking is what I refer to as communion, that sharing, that participating. Just as later we'll have the analogy of the branches in the vine, so we here have the analogy of, of drinking water. I have some water right here. I don't use props, but this is really just for myself. But it seemed like a good time to take a drink. All this talk about water. But that this is what Jesus is talking about, that as we use water to revive ourselves, to sustain ourselves, because you die without it, right? Um, so we need life from Christ. And we have this participation, this communion, this uh, receiving of this drink, uh, this water, by coming to him, by faith. And what is the source of the water of life? Jesus is the source of the water of life. He gives us this water. It's by coming to him that we drink. As he told the Samaritan woman, he gives the living water that satisfies forever. Ask of me, and I will give it to you. As Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven, he is the, the true manna, so he is also the one from whom the water flows. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, the rock was Christ. <clears throat> the rock that the water came from. As the water flowed from the rock in the wilderness, so the living water flows from Christ. He is the life, and from him we receive life. By his death and resurrection, he brings life to the world. His flesh was the, uh, that which he gave for the life of the world. And so the invitation is given to all who thirst. The invitation is to come to Jesus and drink, and that they might receive this water of life which comes from Jesus. But then there's also a, a promise that is found in the next verse, in verse 38, for what is it that happens to the one who comes to Jesus and drinks? What happens to the one who believes in Jesus? He goes on to say, whoever believes in me, again, note the parallel here, to come to me, believes in me, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So from deep within him, you could tra translate it belly or heart. Uh, it's not the normal word for heart, although in the Septuagint it can often uh, translate the word for heart. But the idea is kind of from deep within that this rivers of living water would flow. This is an image of life in abundant and never-ending supply. And Jesus came to give life, to give uh, an abundant quantity of life, an overflowing and never-ending supply of God-given life. This life flows from deep within. It's overflowing. It flows out from him, rivers of living water. This is true life, eternal life, and it's fruit-bearing life. Uh, it is life that flows out. Another analogy later, 
um, is that of the branches on the vine. They, how do they show that they're alive? By bearing fruit. Now, this is the type of life that he's speaking of, the type of life that causes one to be lively in, in that which is good, causes one to be lively in the practice of godliness, uh, the uh, fellowship with God, and a, uh, rather than being cut off from God and dwelling in death and judgment and corruption. It's similar to what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, why does the person never thirst? Is it because uh, he drinks once of Jesus and then he's good? It's because he drinks of Jesus and the water never ends. Uh, that the water continues to well up within him like a spring. The spring just keeps going. Even if it's raining or not raining, it hasn't been raining recently, but a, you know, a, a, a good spring a, uh, will be steady and, and, and continuing to well up with water. And that is the way it is with the person who believes in Jesus. Now, verse 39 goes on to say, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Those who believed in Jesus were to receive the Spirit after he was glorified. While the Spirit was uh, at work in the Old Testament, giving life, we find many references to the Spirit in the Old Testament, there would be a far greater outpouring of the Spirit in the age of the New Covenant, uh, such a greater outpouring that, relatively speaking, we can say as if it had the Spirit was not yet, uh, that it was not yet the age of the Spirit in which, uh, both for the individual and for the church, as it goes out into all the nations, that there would be uh, a greater outpouring of the Spirit and the life that he gives. And this would happen after Jesus was glorified, because it was his work that would secure the Spirit for his people, that would uh, be the basis of this life that the Spirit gives. Uh, Certainly it was conveyed to believers before Christ, but it's especially uh, fitting that it is poured out with this great abundance after he is glorified. The Spirit and the life he supplies is received by every believer. It's not referring to a particular uh, miraculous gift of the Spirit, but the Spirit and His grace is given by every, received by every uh, believer. And this fulfilled Scripture, as the Scripture says. Now, it seems that he's probably not citing one particular Scripture, but uh, speaking of the teaching of Scripture in the Old Testament and the many texts. I listed a few earlier, but we could go to many that speak of uh, the Uh, grace of God or the Spirit of God being like water, which refreshes, which revives, which would pour out uh, in great abundance, especially in the age of the New Covenant, to all the land, uh, to make even the Dead Sea fresh again and living, uh, to go to the east and to the west, uh, to bring life in its way. And this happens as people are converted, as they believe in Christ, as they bear good fruit, uh, the the world is transformed as people begin uh, to uh, live in the Spirit and to live rather than being dead in sin. As John six sixty three said, or as Jesus said 
in that previous chapter, it is the Spirit who gives life. Uh, The Spirit is the life giver. Both with Jesus as the bread of life and with Jesus as the source of living water, the life comes from Jesus and is conveyed to believers by the Spirit. We speak of this in terms of the Lord's Supper, that it's the Spirit that brings us this life and communion with Christ, but it's true also not with respect to the Lord's Supper, generally how we have participation in Christ, that it is the Spirit who gives us new life. The Spirit is bringing life to all the world through the gospel today as he brings people to faith that they might participate in this life. The spiritual deserts and the dead seas of the world are becoming gardens, are becoming fruitful as the gospel bears fruit and fills the earth. The Spirit is giving true life, eternal life, fruit-bearing life, flowing from Christ, welling up in the heart of every believer. And it would be, uh, this is what God is doing, and all people are called to participate in it. That each of us uh, avail ourselves of it, to drink of this living water, and having tasted that the Lord is good, to continue to, to come to him, to participate in him, Uh, to abide in him as he abides in us, and to bear much fruit, and also to call others, to invite others to come, to come to Jesus freely. As the end of Revelation says, both the Spirit and the bride, the church also says, come, come, take the water of life without price. Those who are thirsty, let them drink. Now, after this, some people rightly concluded that this was the Christ, You know, this is the prophet. This is the Christ. But others disputed. Again, their words are ironic. Their reason for doubt was actually another confirmation of his identity as the Christ. They say, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, that's true. And guess what? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Um, they might not have been aware of that, but it's again of a, a, a ironic comment where people say something that's more true than they realize, that this is in fact the Christ. And that's further reason to believe that he is the Christ. He is the descendant of David, and he's born, he was born in Bethlehem. Well, then the officers come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they say, why didn't you bring him? Where, where's Jesus? We sent you to arrest him, and now you're back. And he's not here. Uh, what, why not? <clears throat> and the answer they give is, no one ever spoke like this man. That is true. What teacher says these things? He spoke with authority, not like the scribes. He spoke uh, with authority. He spoke with wisdom. You know, they wondered, where did he get this learning, never having studied, you know, with one of our approved rabbis? He spoke with wisdom greater than Solomon's. And he spoke as the Savior, calling all people to himself. I said earlier, what what teacher says, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood? What teacher says, come to me and I'll give you living waters of eternal life? Um, Come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, he presented himself as the Savior, the one who would bring life to a world that dwelt in darkness and death. And so the officers, having heard him, 
did not arrest him. They were stopped by his very words. Even those who were there to arrest him uh, saw the, the weight of the words that he taught. Now the Pharisees objected to the officers. They berate them for their folly, for you know, listening to this man. Um, you know, none of the important people are following this guy. Uh, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They're assuming that, no, we haven't believed him. So I, and obviously we know better, so you should listen to us. But again, this is ironic because Nicodemus was one of them. He was one of the authorities, and he was beginning to believe in Jesus. Uh, he, he begins to speak up for Jesus here, and we know six months later, he's going to stick his neck out to bury Jesus as a disciple of Christ, though for a time he was secret. So actually, yes, there were some authorities, there were some Pharisees that would believe in Jesus. And here Nicodemus tries to speak up for Jesus. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? See, the Pharisees had said, oh, this crowd doesn't know the law. They're unlearned. You know, they're they're accursed. They, They don't know what they're thinking. But Nicodemus is saying, well, if we have the law and we're trying to abide by the law, then shouldn't we give him a hearing and learn what he does? You know, we shouldn't just judge him uh, without this process. They weren't keeping the law. Jesus had said, you have the law of Moses and you're not practicing it. But they manifested prejudice against him uh, because he testified that their deeds were evil. But then they reply, Nicodemus, they don't say, oh, good point. We should listen to him and learn what he did. Uh, they say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, more irony. First of all, for speaking of past prophets, Jonah arose from Galilee. So, yes, prophets could come from Galilee. They have a similar antagonism towards Galilee, similar to Nathaniel thinking what good could come from Nazareth. Um, Isaiah 9 actually kind of spoke of Galilee being made glorious and light dawning from that region. Matthew speaks of that. Matthew even says the fact that he would be born a Nazarene was in fulfilling of Scripture, probably because he would come as of no account in the eyes of men, like Isaiah 52 and 53 says. But then, of course, we know more than that. He wasn't born in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. So in their haste to dismiss him, they missed the truth. They misunderstood May all people heed this and stop and give him a hearing and to come to Jesus and to drink. For he is the Christ. He is the source of living water. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for giving us life in your Son, that all those who believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life and participate in that life of the world to come and even now to bear fruit to to do good uh, to uh, flourish in ways that are pleasing in your sight more and more we pray that you would uh, transform the world by the waters of life that flow from the throne of god from the spirit as he works in the hearts of men, that this water would come welling up within them and out of them and continue to cause the stream to grow in depth. We pray, Father, that we might see it, that we might behold your work in the earth, 
in our lives, in our hearts. We pray that you would fill us with righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we pray this uh, not only for our own sake, but for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who came for this purpose. We pray this also in his name. Amen. <clears throat>